Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is John Fisher, who is not the owner of the Oakland A's. He's the other John Fisher. I have lunch with him every year, though. Do you really? Yeah, five John Fishers get together every year at the Pacific Union Club. Uh, We're the John Fisher Luncheon Annual. Gap John Fisher is there, and there's a venture capitalist. They're all much richer than I am. They're billionaires, and he gives me updates on the A's. He's a great guy. Gap Fisher is a wonderful guy. And he comes and sees my plays. He saw me in the normal heart, my underwear. And he came and saw Breaking the Code. And he's going to come see History of World War II. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's a theater guy. Yeah, he's a theater fan. Well, this John Fisher. Is, me, John Fisher. <laughs> is the artistic director of Theater Rhinoceros, the Rhino. Also a director, a playwright, now the actor in a one-man show that he has written. Did you direct... No, I didn't. My friend Jerry Metzger directs it. Uh, I wrote it and I act in it, but my friend Jerry wrote, uh, directed it. And that's the history of World War II from D-Day through to the fall of Berlin? That's right. You get the whole history of World War II from June 6, 1944 to May 7, 1945. And that's at the Marsh in San Francisco, and it's running from November 8th to December 15th. It's Thursday at 8 and Saturdays at 8.30. Twice a week. And also we'll be talking about the upcoming Rhino season, the first show of which is already started. It's The Boy from Oz, which runs through November 17th. And also uh, December 3rd, you're doing a word-for-word free at Z? At Z Space, yeah, yeah. And that's The Swimmer by John Cheever, and that's a one-man show? No, I'm The Swimmer. I'm the guy that swims across Long Island through swimming pools. And I encounter all these people whose lives I've ruined or interfered with. So it's a full cast. And it's only for one performance? Yeah, it's just for one performance. Word for Word is terrific. Oh, I love Word for Word. I've worked with them a couple of times. Been to Paris with them twice. They do wonderful stuff. And so I had this idea, because I love John Cheever. And the, I mean, the great John Cheever story is The Swimmer. So I said, well, we should do The Swimmer. And I'm a swimmer. And I'd love to play The Swimmer. Sue Harless said, yeah, let's do it. Well, let's... Talk first, I guess, about your one-man show, History of World War II, from D-Day through to the fall of Berlin. I understand you've always been interested in World War II? I was obsessed with World War II as a child. It all started when I saw Where Eagles Dare on TV. I thought, this is like the most amazing thing of all time. What is it? Oh my God. I was seven years old. I was like, oh my God, this is World War II. It is so great. Richard Burton in World War II, dressed up as a German, blowing stuff up. I thought, this is, this is heaven. And ever since then, I've been obsessed with World War II. And it was really crazy when I was a kid because it really brought me out of myself. And it brought a lot of adventure and excitement to my life. And my parents 
parents had this huge property with redwood trees and a forest and hills and mud behind the house. And I'd go back there and I'd recreate all these battles from World War II. And it really got me into theater because I loved uh, play acting war. It also got me into history. I was a history major at UC Berkeley. It was sort of my awakening was World War II. And I didn't know that anything bad had happened. I didn't know what it was to die. I didn't know of any of the dark secrets of World War II. I just knew the fun stuff blowing stuff up. And so as I got older, I realized that my obsession was somewhat unhealthy. I also got teased about it because it was Vietnam. And people would make fun of me. You're a war freak. You're a war freak. And I was like, yeah, that's great. But I grew out of it eventually as I became more aware of sort of the darker sides. And so it's it's a history of World War II. I mean, you get all the battles, and I recreate them on stage. I crawl around. I make explosions. The audience helps. The audience does machine gun fire. So it's a real sort of interactive thing. But I also talk about the dangers of this obsession and what it was like to grow up with my older brother, who was also obsessed with it, too. You also have done something like four different shows. You've written four different shows for Rhino that have dealt with World War II as well. Yeah, I mean, one of my first, uh, Glickman award-winning play was Combat, which was about gays in the military in World War II. And uh, I've done a bunch of shows since then about different aspects of the war. So I'm not really as obsessed as I used to be, but it's there, it's in me. And I think that the Second World War is a very interesting subject because I think we still think of it as the good war as compared to Afghanistan or uh, Iraq or Vietnam. But it wasn't really a good war. I think everybody involved in World War II has a lot to answer for, including the United States. And I, I bring up a lot of those issues as I talk about it. One of the issues is that for a long time, the Nazis were basically the boogeyman, almost to a point where they'd become, I don't know, the witch from Hansel and Gretel. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, the and yeah. now, of course, we have Nazis, the re-rise of the Nazis right. in the United States yeah. as well as all over the world. So mm. it used to be fine to have a Halloween costume, for instance, yeah. as a Nazi. These yeah. days, it's probably not. And yeah. does that change how you view the war or your work? Well, I think the, the, the questions I bring up in discussing the war are not so much about the Nazis. I, I illuminate darker aspects of the Holocaust that people don't know about. One thing about the Holocaust that's fascinating is that it was going full bore in 1944, and the Germans were fighting two massive wars on two fronts. They were fighting a war in Italy. They were getting bombed day and night by the American Air Corps, and yet they still managed to murder Jews at an alarming rate in 1944. It's like, how? Why? And I talk about the motivations for doing that. But I also talk about how Roosevelt facilitated the Holocaust by not allowing Jews to immigrate to the United States, how the American Air Corps would not bomb the railheads leading into Auschwitz to prevent the boxcars from getting to Auschwitz. There was a lot of complicity all over the world with the Holocaust that people aren't aware of, about how many occupied Europeans, the French, the Ukrainians, the Russians, helped the Nazis round up Jews. So I get into a lot of the darker sides of the Holocaust that people don't know about. And by dark, I mean it's all dark. The Holocaust is a dark subject. But I try to illuminate uh, areas that have become uh, lost to history about the complicity of other nations and peoples in the persecution of the Jews during World War II. You know, obviously, it's a bad thing to put on a Nazi uniform. In my whole life, it has never been a good thing. Uh, Prince Harry dressed as a officer in the Africa Corps at a party and was vilified for it, rightfully so, I think, because I don't think there should be any glorification of the Germans in any respect during World War II. So, you know, it's deeply troubling that people still think it's okay. It's never been okay in my lifetime. And I think that sometimes people's sense of fun blinds them to 
what they're really doing. So this whole Halloween costume thing. And Halloween is, is a deeply troubling time of year because people want to dress up as certain things and a lot of them aren't appropriate. I mean, when I was growing up, uh, Silver Streak was a big movie and a lot of kids wanted to do blackface because Gene Wilder had done it in Silver Streak at Halloween time. And that's, you know, it's like, no. <laughs> I mean, you have to think about this stuff, right? That just throws down, I think, challenges to children. And uh, children should be challenged. You got to start thinking early in life. I think that's what the lesson is. Let's go back a bit. You do all the work for Rhino and you're writing plays. What brought up the idea of doing a one-person play that would wind up in different venues like The Marsh? I think you hit the nail on the head. It's highly portable. One thing that's very challenging about theater is that it's not portable. People say, you should move your show to San Jose. And I'm like, really? I've got like 12 drag queens on stage. I've got a bus on stage. It's not that easy to move all this stuff. I wanted to come up with a show that I could do anywhere. I've done it in New York at the um, United Solo Festival. I've done it at Pangea, a performance venue in New York. I've done it with the Rhinoceros. I'm doing it at the Marsh. It's a highly portable production. And I can tell a story. I love to talk about this story of my childhood growing up. And so I wanted to create something that I could transport easily. And I've done this show, just arrived at a space, had one rehearsal and done it. And there's really nothing else in theater you can do that with. And that, I think, is the real glory of the marsh and of one-man shows in general. I mean, you go to the marsh and it's not, it's not about sets. It's not about costumes. It's not about spectacle. It's about stories, people, characters. And that's what I love about the Marsh. It's dedicated to breeding ground for new performance. It's not a breeding ground for theater, which is very complicated and wonderful, but it's about performance, about delivering something. I just went to a festival at the Marsh, and I saw three shows, three different shows in an hour and a half. Impossible with plays or musicals. You couldn't do it. How long is your show? My show is an hour and 15 minutes. Once you had decided you were going to do this and began working on it, how much is scripted? Is anything ad lib? Well, there's a script. I tend to go with the flow. I'm not bound to particular words. This is another thing that's liberating about the one-man show format is with a play, you really are responsible for saying the exact lines every night because you're on stage with a bunch of other people. And you're not telling the story alone. You're telling it with other people. With the one-man show format, I can rephrase things. I can emphasize things. I can let the audience carry me off on a a slight tangent. I can't go too far because, of course, I'm going to add time and lose the train of things. So it is scripted, but there's some wiggle room. Most of your plays that you do at Rhino, you direct, and that may include directing yourself. This is different because someone directed you. Yes. My friend Jerry Metzger, who I've known forever, he's an MFA from Columbia. He's great. He's great. He, he, he gives me notes after every run-through, and I do almost all of them. I think people think when you act and direct that you don't want input. I love input. I don't always take input, but I listen, and I write stuff down, and I think about it. I remember this from working with Margaret Gomez. I used to direct her, and I'd say, how about this? How about that? And sometimes she'd like shake her head, and then the next day, in a run-through, I'd see it. So that's the thing about feedback. Sometimes it's perfect. Thank you. I've got it. I'm going to do it. Other times, it's like I have to think about it. And that's how it is working with Jerry. Although at this point, pretty much everything he gives me, I'm like, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right, right. I love the outside eye. So that's been an exciting part of the process also. Do you use dramaturgs on your own plays? Sometimes. Jerry has done that for my plays. He's said, you know, you've already stated this. This is a tangent. So with this play, I talk a lot about Russia because here's the big secret of World War II. The Russians won the war for us. 95% of the people who died in Europe were Russian soldiers. They won the Second World War for us. But, you know, I can't let that carry me off into a whole discussion of, of Russia 
And he said, that's, you're not talking about Russia. You make that point, but then get back to the Americans and the British and the Germans. That's what your show's about. D-Day to the fall of Berlin. It's about the Western Front. You have to be reminded of this stuff. You have to be reminded of how to use the stage. What is restatement? Well, when you're directing, acting, and writing, that's a lot of pressure. Do you feel on some level that even though there's a one-person show, there's a little less pressure because there's somebody out there who is able to kind of keep you under wraps? I think when I write and direct and act myself, I'm creating something that's unique. I don't know a lot of people who do this. Charles Ludlam, one of my great inspirations, used to do this sort of thing. I also have a lot of input from outside people. Even on those projects, I have people saying, you know, think about this, think about that, think about this. With this particular project, it's great to have somebody out there because I'm not up there with anybody else. I have to tell the story all on my own. It's crucial to have somebody out there reacting and telling me, you are playing all the characters, and you have to interact with yourself convincingly. That is a great benefit on this particular project. But I, I have that on all my projects. I mean, even when I'm writing, directing, and acting in a, in a play play with other characters, I do have assistant directors and a lot of people telling me, you know, th this needs to be thought about. You need to talk to this other actor about this. You've lost sight of that. You know, I do have a lot of outside input. Do you like acting? I love to go on stage and act. I love it, love it, love it. I mean, it's it, it makes me very nervous. It's horrifying to start. It's it's terrible being in the dressing room before. But once I'm out there, that's how I started in theater, was going on stage. I played Nathan Detroit in Guys and Dolls. I was like, oh my God, this is great. That was in high school. That's when I got the acting bug, was in high school, acting in Neil Simon plays, musicals. What brought you then to playwright and directing? I couldn't find the stories I wanted to tell. I love Neil Simon, but he never wrote a gay play. And I felt like what had to be added to the world was a gay play and a very specific kind of play. When I was writing plays, it was all about AIDS. And my generation was a little bit after the AIDS generation. And I love Angels in America, as is Normal Heart. I think those are all brilliant plays. But my generation came out sexually already living with AIDS. And I wanted to write plays specifically about my generation. And so I wrote The Joy of Gay Sex. That was my first play. And it was about how joy had been rediscovered in sexuality. There wasn't all these anxieties about safe sex. Safe sex was just about the way we lived and that we had found joy in it. And also I wanted to write a play that was very open and pro-sex at UC Berkeley because there, it was a drama department that didn't do gay plays. And so I wanted to do new plays specifically about what it was to be a gay person in the Bay Area. So many plays about homosexuality come from New York or London. And we have a very unique thing going on here, which is not New York. It's not London. It's very different. So it was me struggling with finding plays that would say the things I wanted to say. I mean, if I was a Shakespeare director, I would probably just, you know, make Hamlet gay. Right. But I'm not a Shakespeare director. I'm just a, like a modern, contemporary, naturalistic director. So it really arose out of wanting to direct plays that would say what I wanted to say. And so as a director, I had to find that play and I realized I had to write it. You, know, you did Medea the Musical. That's right. It yeah. was... It was uh a big hit in the Bay Area. That's right. What attracted you to becoming artistic director of of the Rhino? The only reason I've ever done anything is to give myself opportunities. I wanted to work more. I've been very lucky as artistic director. I can write, I can direct, I can act. I can also facilitate other people's experiences. I produce plays that I don't write, direct, or act in. I put a lot of actors on stage. I love that. I come from the educational theater where it's all about providing opportunities. And I realized that if I ran Theater Rhinoceros, I could provide myself and as many people as I could manage opportunities. And some years we've almost gone broke because I put too many people on stage. My shows have been too big. And then I have to dial it back the next year and do smaller shows. But it's always been about 
giving myself the opportunities. And when I was at UC Berkeley, I could do that. I was at UC Berkeley for 10 years, and they said, you have got to go. You have got to go away. I said, why don't you just make me a faculty member? They're like, no, we're sick of you. Go, get out of here. So I had to find another place to be my UC Berkeley, and it became Theater Rhinoceros. I'm very lucky that way. I run the theater with the best name in the world. Nobody else has a, has a name like ours, Theater Rhinoceros. Nobody has ever told me, told me you have to change the name of that theater. I inherited this great name, Theater Rhinoceros, which also can be reduced to a great other name, Theater Rhino or The Rhino. It is the best theater name ever, and I've been very lucky to inherit it. Do you know how they got the name? There's different stories. The one I like best is that the early queer movement was very concerned about image. And so they chose the rhinoceros because the rhinoceros is vegetarian. It leaves other animals alone. It, it's this very nice animal until you provoke it. And then it is vicious. It is built like a tank. I mean, it is the most military of beasts because it's got that huge horn. It's got armor for a body. The hardest animal to capture for zoos is the rhinoceros because it can take on any vehicle you send out after it. Any vehicle fast enough to chase it down it can defeat with its horn. So that was the early queer movement. It was like, we're gentle, we're loving, all, we're just vegetarians, we're out doing our thing, but if you attack us, we will fight back viciously. And so I thought that was a great metaphor for the early queer movement. We're loving, we're kind, we just want to do our thing, we just want to be gay, but if you attack us, we're going to fight back. Was that conscious then when they did that? must have been. Yes, I think so. So I think that that's the best story of why it became Theater Rhinoceros. I think it's still relevant. I think that the queer movement is still there. People used to ask me, why is there queer theater when ACT, when Broadway are doing queer plays? But people don't ask me that anymore because now we're back into these gender wars. We're back into these wars about identity. I mean, people don't even ask that anymore. It's great. I think people feel like there should be more queer theaters because so much of our society now is being destroyed through these attacks on people's identity. Uh, be it drag, be it transgender, uh, people are not being allowed to identify themselves anymore. And so there is great necessity for queer theater now. Let's talk about the upcoming season at Rhino. Now you're permanently at the Gateway. The Gateway, formerly the, the Eureka. Yeah. What happened to that old venue? How'd you lose the venue on 16th? We didn't lose it. We moved out. It was a blighted building. It was a challenged building. It had become unsafe. That neighborhood has never gentrified. People think the mission is like, you know, Park Avenue now. it's it, Certain areas, yes. Valencia, beautiful. That's where the marsh is. Valencia is a beautiful street. Mission Street is good. 16th and Cap is not good. And that's where our old theater was. It's drugs, it's prostitution, which are fine. I make no judgments. But our audiences didn't want to come there. They felt it was dangerous. I used to go to theater in New York in the 70s. I was like, part of going to theater was getting mugged. I mean, I was just like, you know, I'm going to play. I got mugged, of course. But people's idea of theater has changed. When they go to a play, they don't want to get mugged. And so it was time to move out of that neighborhood. And it is still a challenged neighborhood. It has not been fixed. And so we are now at the Gateway, which is in the Gateway Center. It's very nice. It's surrounded by restaurants and parking and public transportation. It's a perfect place for us. Do you have to coordinate your schedule then with 42nd Street Moon? 42nd Street Moon, we share the space with 42nd Street Moon. We also share uh, office space with them. We also share rehearsal space. So they are our partners in the Gateway Theater. It's a wonderful company. We have very similar audiences. They only do musicals. We only do queer shows. And there's a lot of overlap in those two audiences. So it's, it's copacetic. I mean, it's a really terrific uh, collaboration. But it also means that you have to coordinate who is doing what and when and you can't extend. 
That is true. Uh, you can't really do a lot of extension in San Francisco because the theaters tend to be booked up anyway. It's very hard to. It's not like Broadway where theaters tend to be open ended. Forty Second Street Moon and Theater Rhinoceros. Neither of us wants to produce fifty two weeks a year. It's just too much programming. If we can work out the schedule, and we always have up to now, it's fine. It always works out fine. John Fisher, The Boy from Oz, which just opened and is running through November 17th, you've begun doing more musicals yourself. Probably the venue helps and the fact that yeah. there is a musicals company there. Right. And you have access, I would guess, to musicians through yeah. them. Actually, we found these musicians on our own. What brought you to The Boy From Oz? I mean, there aren't that many Broadway shows about gay people, and of course this one is. That's a very good point. There are a lot of shows out there about queer people, and they're not produced. The ones that tend to be produced are falsettos and a couple others. But this is a show that gets very few productions. Nobody does it. And it's about Peter Allen, who was, I think, a seminal figure in queer entertainment because he was so open. He was so gay on stage, and he had such a big heart as a performer. And yet, at the same time, publicly closeted like Liberace. Publicly closeted, but less and less so as he got older. He became a big activist and fundraiser for AIDS. He was married to Liza Minnelli, which is probably the most closeted thing you can do. But that didn't last long. They divorced. And he died openly of AIDS. He was not somebody who, who denied what had happened to him. The show really is about his accepting his own homosexuality. The show did not get very good reviews. I think Hugh Jackman starred on Broadway. That's right, it. yeah. It stayed open mostly because of Jackman. But people I know who've seen it think it's a much better show, as a show, than it was given credit for. I think you're setting yourself up with the New York reviewers when you do this type of show because it's a jukebox musical. The music was not written for this particular show. And there's a prejudice in New York coverage against anything that's jury-rigged. This is very well jury-rigged. The book is by Martin Sherman, the great gay playwright who wrote Bent. It's a brilliant book, beautifully conceived. And the use of his songs is perfect. The songs seem to have been written for the show. I think uh, New York reviewers can be very short-sighted when it comes to shows that are put together this way. I think in this case, they did it a disservice. It is not just because of Hugh Jackman, who's a brilliant performer. It's because of the quality of the show. It handles his uh, relationship with Judy Garland, his relationship with Liza Minnelli, his relationship with Greg Connell, his boyfriend who died of AIDS. It handles all those things sensitively and with great artistry. So I think, yeah, you know, people like to say, you know, something's held together by a star performance. I don't think that's true. If you actually read the reviews, they're actually very complimentary of Judy and Liza and the general handling of his life. They just get kind of bogged down in how it was created as opposed to the quality of the product itself, which is very high. People don't remember Peter Allen. What were a couple of the big hits? He came from that generation of uh, sort of the, the, what is it, the Brill building, the um, uh, sort of the second generation of Tin Pan Alley composers. Everything he wrote is beautiful. I have my favorite songs, but of course the big hits are I Go to Rio, Don't Cry Out Loud, I Honestly Love You. These were big schmaltzy songs. And in the show, they're not schmaltzy. They're very beautifully handled in the show itself. But my favorite numbers are like his big Judy Garland tribute, Quiet Please, There's a Lady on Stage, which is not that famous a song, but it, it, it's an incredible song. I think the whole score, this is what I love about it, it's all hummable. Every single song is hummable. Now, I see Broadway shows now, and many are wonderful. Some of them are big hits, and there's like one good song. There's like one good melody, right? 
It's like that's all you have to do now to have a Broadway hit is have one good song. Well, you need a good script, but that's another thing. You, you need a good script. You need good performers. But as far as the score goes, you don't have to have that many good songs. I come from the generation who grew up on Rodgers and Hammerstein. There was like 14 hits, every single song. And that's what this show is like. Everything Peter Allen wrote is great. Oh, my favorite. No, no, my favorite, my favorite. Everybody will know this song too, Arthur's Theme. When you get caught between the moon and New York City, oh, yeah. best that you can do. I mean, I love it. That's one of the songs. And he just everything he wrote was like a wonderful melody. Getting the rights is easy because it's an old show. Easy because nobody does it. This is a great musical that nobody does. And this is what, it was the same with Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. We had a huge hit with that. Nobody does it. And I would scream homophobia, but I don't think that's the case. I just think there's 50 musicals that people just do over and over again. And Priscilla was the same thing. It's like nobody does Priscilla. And it's this terrific show. It was a big hit for us both times. Audiences love that story. A transgender and two drag queens crossing Australia. We seem to be stuck in Australia. All the great stories come out of Australia now. All the great queer stories. But that was a terrific show and a lot of fun to do. Justin Jenna is the star. Where did he come from? He came from ACT. He just graduated from ACT's MFA program. He came on audition for me at Theater Rhinoceros. His audition was so good, I asked him to come on audition for my class, for my acting class. And I said to my students, this is how you audition for a show. And they were just like blown away. He sings, he dances, he's better looking than uh, Hugh Jackman or Peter Allen. He's a real charmer on stage. One thing I discovered about him, I had no idea. He narrates his own story, The Boy From Oz. And on opening night, I had no idea. He was up there narrating the story to the audience, and the audience started talking back. And he talked back to them. He was like a stand-up comic on opening night. I had no idea he had these abilities. I said, Justin, what was going on? He said, I love being in front of audiences. I said, I know that, but I didn't know you could talk to them. I thought you'd just stick to the script. He said, do you mind? I said, no, it was great. I'm, now I'm going to get in trouble, right, with, with the rights. They're going, well, what, what did you say on the radio? You can't, you can't change the script. But he, he really interacted with them. And during the finale, he was dancing all over the stage. And the audience was going crazy, but not enough for him. So he started shouting, come on, San Francisco. Come on, San Francisco. Come on. And they started clapping more. It was so charming. He's such a charming guy on stage. He's, he's really perfect for this role. Uh, the next show, you have that New Year's Eve show, Megabytes? Yeah, that's a musical about uh, the tech generation and about the challenges. I think all of us who are over 25 are constantly like trying to catch up with tech. It's a very funny musical about the challenges of, of working your phone, actually. Was that produced elsewhere first? Or? Yeah, it was originally done at the Shelton Theater, and we're very lucky the creator, Morris Bobrow, is loaning us his show for New Year's. And that's going to be at the Eureka? That's uh, going to be at the Eureka, at the Gateway, yeah. At the Gateway, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, the next show is is another John Fisher extravaganza, Action Hero. That's right. Which is uh, Takeoff on Tom Cruise. Well, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> you said that. I'm not going to say that. Yes, it's about an action hero with some... Public and private challenges. Tom snooze. <laughs> <laughs> it's really just an action movie. I'm going to be flying all over the theater. I'm going to turn the theater into a bunch of areas for me to climb around and jump off of. Yeah. Oh, you're going to be the star. Oh, my God, yes. I'm younger than Tom Cruise. It's like an action movie. It's an action movie with a challenge star. And then uh, after that, you've got another former Broadway show that also had gay elements, Death Trap by R11. That's right. That one is a mystery, and it was a very good movie, I remember. It was a thriller, yeah. And uh, how did that come to you? I've always thought that was a very interesting tale because it's about playwriting and it's about theater and what it feels like to endure the challenges of theater. You're talking about a playwright who hasn't had a hit in a long time. 
and the isolation he feels and the desperation that it drives him to. I think for anybody in the theater or anybody who follows theater, it's a very exciting tale. I remember seeing it on Broadway with Farley Granger. It was great. I mean, it was. It, it's like it's a thriller. It's like sleuth. It's like terrifying and scary and. I don't want to give away any of the plot elements, but it's got more twists than any play I've ever seen. Christopher Reeve and Michael Caine. Michael Caine, yeah. yeah, with a big kiss scene, a famous kiss scene, and and a big twist at the end. Yeah, a big twist at the end of Act One, and then two twists in Act Two. Finally, next summer, I guess you're going to do Sister Act. Sister musical. Act. Now that's a more recent musical. More Is recent. that again one show that nobody wants to do? Or? It's underproduced. It's a terrific show that's underproduced, and I can't even believe this. This is the big surprise of last year. I couldn't believe this. I asked the publishers, and they always say no to this. Every single person I've ever asked this has said no. I said, "Can I have the Whoopi Goldberg character and the Maggie Smith character? Can I have those two characters played by men?" Always, 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 the answer has been no. And the answer came back yes. In drag, they said, you can't change the pronouns. I said that to them. I said, I won't change the pronouns. I won't turn she's into he's. But drag queens call each other she. Sure. Right. So I couldn't even believe this. I had permission to do this show with two men in the leads, playing them as drag queens. Do you have performers in mind? I have performers in mind. I'm not going to say who because it never works out. Every time I have performers in (laughs) mind, it doesn't work out. Then I have to find other performers who are equally fabulous. I do have two people in mind. And they're both men, and they're going to play these roles. And they're going to play them as drag queens. They're going to play them as drag queens. They're as drag queens, which I think is perfect because they both have something. Like the the Mother Superior has something on the Whoopi Goldberg character, but she also has something on the Mother Superior because she's probably the only person who knows you are not a born female. And that has original – Alan Menken, the score is unbelievable. Again, why is this not done? I think the sexuality thing – I think there's just – there's too much sexuality in these musicals that I produce. There can't be like a Sister Act Junior, those productions that are written for high school, right? right? I think if you don't have a show that can be done at a high school, it doesn't quite get the same fame value in terms of productions. Is there a gay theme running throughout the show? If it's played as written? Yeah. No, 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 no. It's not gay at all. It will be gay in the theater rhinoceros production because these guys are both, they're both men. They're both men. I mean, drag also brings with it a certain savoir faire. Is that um, going to be? There? Yeah. The, the, the people I have in mind, I have, no, I have no worries about them. These are people born to drag. I have breached a lot of drag queens. I have put men in dresses for the first time. Often. Well, for Priscilla. For Priscilla. Daryl Jones had never been in a dress. He took to it like a duck to water. I mean, you'd think this kid had been in heels his whole life. But these guys have a, a lot of experience. That should be interesting. Oh, I think it's going to be great. I mean, I was just listening to the score this morning. I can't believe how good this score is, Alan Menken's score. Here's my one problem with it. The movie was set in San Francisco. And for some reason, the musical is set in Philadelphia. I'm like, why? So I'm going to ask them if I can put it back in San Francisco, where it belongs. I remember when it was filmed. It was filmed up on uh, Church Street. That's right. It's it's like, why would you move something to Philadelphia? Who cares? So I'm going to put it back in San Francisco. I think that's where drag queens belong. To do that, all you have to do is change Philadelphia to San Francisco. I know. They're letting me change the gender of the leads. I, I, who knows? I already love these people anyway, so I'm not going to be disappointed if I have to do it in Philadelphia. John Fisher, you've got Action Hero and you've got History of World War II. How many plays do you write at once? 
Oh, I'm always writing. I write every day. Who is it? Gore Vidal. It's just like, just get up and write. He said the problem with Truman Capote is he didn't write every day. If you don't do whatever you do, your thing every day, you're going to lose the habit of it. So I write every day and I, I, I pounce on every opportunity I get and I really enjoy it. I just bang it out and then I revise it. You direct your own plays, and that's kind of an auteur thing. But you also direct other plays. Uh, What for you is the difference? I would say a lot more collaboration. When I direct a play written by somebody else, I find that I don't have all the answers. The actors and I are, are much more finding the piece. When I write a play that I've written, I tend to say, this is what I'm after. And often the actors will change that because I'll see that they have some skill or some insight that teaches me about my own writing. But that's that process. If I'm doing a play like Death Trap, the actors are coming at it, maybe not with as much background as I have, but they quickly get to where I am. And there's a much more of a collaborative sort of molding of the dough that is going to be baked. That happened with The Boy From Oz. I mean, this cast really taught me a lot about these characters. Judy Garland in our show is unbelievable. You Um, directed this one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, They taught me a lot about these characters, and I found myself empowering them to make these discoveries. Well, I know that on Priscilla, it almost came across as a complaint from you that you had to cede so much authority to the choreographers. (laughs) (laughs) I love choreographers. A.J. Mitchell, who choreographed Priscilla, taught me so much about theater. I told him one day, I said, I didn't love this musical until I saw you working on it. He used to get up there and dance with them to pump their energy up, to show them how to do the dances. He would like dance the numbers with them. I love choreographers. Kevin Hammond, who who choreographed Boy From Oz, One number is Bob Fosse. Another number is like a a revival number. Another number is salsa. I mean, it's just like every number is like an education. And the great thing about choreographers, Kevin Hammond put somebody in the middle of one of these dance numbers who six months ago could not dance. And now he's doing Bob Fosse. The snaps, the poses, the bending at the waist. I mean, the trust that Kevin has put into these dancers has made them much better dancers. Rehearsal time for a musical and rehearsal time for a play. I would think a musical must be longer. It depends. When we did King Lear, it was a lot of rehearsal. It's a lot of rehearsal. Well, that was the outdoor one. Yeah. Shakespeare can feel like a musical. There's so much going on. Shakespeare's plots, God love him. I mean, just like his plots are so complicated. It depends on the show. But there's no shortchanging plays. I used to try to do plays in a very short amount of time. And I always found that you don't get the resonance, the depth, if you shortchange your plays rehearsal time. Yes, superficially, musicals take a lot more time. It's the dances and learning the music. It's the singing and the dancing take time. A play, it takes time in a different way. And maybe it's not as many hours actually in the rehearsal room with everybody, but everybody has to go off on their own and really become these people. And they're not helped. Music helps. A melody tells a whole story. It engages the audience in a way that a speech doesn't. If actors don't have enough time with a play, it can seem very shallow. It can tell a great story, and it can take you on a journey, but there's a certain, there's a certain resonance that doesn't quite happen. I don't know how to describe it. But superficially, yes, a musical takes a lot more time. A musical... It won't come across as shallow. It'll come across as under-rehearsed. Yes, exactly. Very well put. A, a musical would just look like they need more time. A play, a lot of audiences members don't always realize when a play 
isn't there, isn't working, because they, they, they follow the story, they like the characters, they go on the journey, but they don't quite realize what they're missing in terms of the emotion. The more you run a play, the more run-throughs you have of a play, the more the actors discover emotion, the more they can relax, stop worrying about the lines and the blocking, and connect. And if you run a play enough times, you'll see the actors crying. You'll see them really listening to each other. You'll see them really caring about each other without losing pace. <laughs> the, the play will still have pace. But even within the pace, there'll be so much more of a family on stage. And it's the magic of run-throughs. Not that long ago, I saw a play that was supposed to be a comedy, and it wasn't funny. It was not opening night. I could not tell, was it the fact that the actors were miscast? Was it the direction? Or was it just a bad night? If you walk into a play and you see something like that, what should be running through your mind? What would be running through John Fisher's mind? You can't be responsible for the audience. Uh, you know, audiences are different. At a comedy, the audience can have a huge effect because if they're laughing, they fuel the energy of the piece. But I also say to the actors, every audience gets the same show. And even if they're not laughing, they might be smiling. So it, it, you have to give the same amount of energy. You can't shortchange the audience. You can't guess that they're not enjoying themselves. Matinee audiences do not guffaw and cheer. They smile. It's a whole different energy, but they deserve the same show. A play should be like that. It should always have that same amount of energy. So I don't know what you saw. It might be that the cast lost energy because the audience wasn't giving them enough. I find that unacceptable. A comedy always has to have energy. I have sweated my, my tail end off in comedy and decided that the audience just wasn't receptive and then gone out in the lobby and people said, oh, my God, that was great. I said, but you weren't laughing. They said, oh, well, we, you know, we just were smiling. You on stage don't always know exactly what the reaction is. You've got no idea what's going on in the audience. You've got no idea, none. The audience gets to do whatever they want. If the audience wants to answer phone calls, they paid to answer phone calls, and they have to police themselves. If another audience member isn't going to tell them to shut up, you have to ignore their phones going off. If they fall asleep, you have to ignore that. If they, if they, I've had audience members walk out in the middle of Act 1. I'm like, oh, my God, somebody just left. And then 10 minutes later, they come back from the bathroom. So you're making all these judgments like, oh, my God, they hate me. And then they come back from the bathroom. I've had audience members walk out. And then later I say to them, why did you leave? Oh, I was sick. I was, I was going to bomb it. You cannot guess what's going on with the audience. And if you do and then let that affect your energy, you're just cheating yourself. Every time you go on stage is a gift. If you go on stage in a comedy, you get to play, play this wonderful, lighthearted story. That's a gift. Enjoy it. Don't second guess what the audience is doing. If they laugh and cheer, that's gravy. But if they're paying attention, were you paying attention? Were you watching this comedy that you're watching? Yeah, I was going to review it. Yeah. Yeah, right. So they're paying attention. They're not leaving. They showed up. If they stay in their chairs, if, if, if there's just one person out there, one person, you have a responsibility to that person to give them, no matter how they're reacting. Comedy should not be affected by audiences. Um, you mentioned the right actors. There are comedy actors. There are people who are very funny on stage. Yes, that's true. Um, sometimes actors are miscast. I still don't think that's an excuse. We all have comedy in us. And if you're an actor, you should be able to discover that comedy. Bad night, I don't believe in bad nights. I think you can squeeze laughs out of any audience. I've had five people in an audience all having a good time. That would 
be the same for drama. It doesn't really. There, there are no bad nights. I don't think there should be a bad night. I, I I think a bad night is always about. If you ask actors, it was a bad night because the audience wasn't laughing, or they weren't paying attention, or they were squirming in their seats. You know what? That's when you go into movie mode. Now you're movie acting. There is no audience. Just tell your story. Just tell your story. Go on the journey. Because you don't know what's going on with them. You cannot say that they aren't liking it or they don't think it's funny. It's just one of those things. And and I've been to shows which other people have loved on different nights. And I've gone on a night and everybody that night in discussion afterward hated the show. You know, that's theater. It's live. It is live. And every audience is different. Every audience has a different experience. You know... Good show, bad show. I, you know, I go and see shows and I always have a good experience because, you know, if the actors are telling their story, I'm always engaged somehow. I, I, I rarely see a show where I was like, that was a bad show because I can always connect with something. And so I don't I don't get really wrapped up in, in good shows, bad shows. I mean, the only thing I'd say is a bad show is like just sloppy. As you said, under rehearsed, under conceived, under under put together, you know. That's the only thing I would consider bad. As long as the actors are engaged and motivated and things are happening, I tend to enjoy myself. But you're right. I mean, that's that's live theater. I mean, on opening night of The Boy From Oz, a significant thing was somebody walks off stage and blows their brains out with a gun. And the person walked off stage and I could hear the sound cue in the booth, but it didn't happen on stage. The audience had no idea that this character had committed suicide. None. Well, I'm sorry. That's live theater. You want reliable gunshots, go to a movie. Theater is always different. And you can have an audience that did not connect with the material. And you know what's scary? That often happens on opening night when the reviewers are out there. And not one reviewer connected with the material. Peter Allen is famous for Legs Diamond, this huge flop musical. You know about Legs Diamond. Sure. Huge flop musical that nobody connected with. Nobody. You can watch Legs Diamond on YouTube. It is not a bad show. On opening night, nobody connected with that show, and it was destroyed. Watch on YouTube. You'll see a totally acceptable musical. Maybe not the best musical you've ever seen, but you'll see a lot of great dancing. The melodies are great. That's theater. That's just theater. Theater is alive, and live things die sometimes. It's it's resurrected the next night. David Hare said this about theater. It's the most uh, – what's the word? It's, like, it's a Catholic word. It's a Catholic word. It's the most uh, redemptive. You can redeem yourself. You can feel that that didn't work on Thursday night, and you can redeem yourself on Friday. I rarely have two performances where I feel like I wasn't successful because I'm so – the next night after, I feel such a responsibility to get back on track. And usually when I feel bad about performance, it's because I screwed up two lines. I mean it's usually a a part of me knows he didn't really screw up that bad. You know, movies movies never fail because they're always the same, right? They never fail. They never fail. Well, they fail, but that's what the people wanted. Right. I had a movie that I loved, uh, Lost in Translation, the Bill Murray movie. I loved that movie. I loved it. And I sent all my friends to see it. And half of them came back and said, I didn't get it. Bill Murray, I thought it was going to be like wildly funny. It wasn't that funny. In other words, just the fact of somebody telling you a movie's great suddenly sort of dooms it. Or just the fact that I sort of wandered into this movie and I didn't know what to expect. I hadn't seen Bill Murray in a movie for years. And so when it was basically kind of a drama, kind of a sweet drama with some laughs, I was very happy. But my friends went to see a Bill Murray movie. Well, when I do a review on KPFA and give something, someone a rave review and then someone yeah. tells me, oh, because of your <laughs> review, we went to get tickets. 
my heart sinks. <laughs> right. Because I don't know. They may hate it. They may hate it. They may hate it. And it's like I've, I've seen shows and previews on Broadway. I saw a show and previews on Broadway. And I thought, this is boring. And the performers are totally, what boring people. They're so boring. I mean, I was like, these people are unengaged. They just look lazy. You know what the show was? The Real Thing, starring Jeremy Irons and Glenn Close. I thought, here are two movie stars who look bored. Never trust a preview anyway. Uh, right. Well, never trust yourself <laughs> at a preview. I mean, I've, and then I saw, I, I, I saw a play about Vietnam, The Boys in Winter, I think it was called. And it had all these people. It was a great play. And it got ripped to shreds. It was destroyed by the reviewers. So it's sort of like, you know, opening nights, opening nights can be terrible. They can be awful because you feel like, oh, my God, this show's great. And then the opening night audience shows up, and it's the worst combination. Two types of people, reviewers and friends. The worst thing in the world as a reviewer is when you see a show and you go, wow, I really like that, like Head Over Heels. Right. And then you walk out and you talk to the other reviewers, and they all go, God, that thing sucks. <laughs> <laughs> John Fisher. I assume you've already started working on the following season of Rhino, and do you have any other plays that are in in the can and coming to the surface beside what we've already seen? Well, I'm looking for another queer musical. I, 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 I'm very proud of the fact that, uh, you know, I did the Bayer premiere of Stephen Sondheim's Roadshow, his only gay musical. Uh, I turned another one of his musicals, Marry Me a Little, with his permission into a gay love story. I'm really trying to find the lost musical, uh, Boy From Oz, Priscilla. I'm really trying to find the show. Maybe you know. I ask people, what, where's the lost gay musical, the, the, the ones fallen between the cracks? I'm turning Sister Act into a gay musical, but it really isn't one. But with the publisher's blessing, I'm really trying to – I'm also trying to find the lost gay plays. Um, you know, we did Equus, which I think of as essentially a gay play, gay play, right? The Normal Heart. What are the lost gay classics? We had a lot of luck with the Tennessee Williams plays, uh, Something Cloudy, Something Clear, and Two-Character Play. You know, I'm really trying to find those works that really should be part of the canon and aren't. I sort of know one that isn't quite. I'm not sure if it's a gay musical. Let's but hear it. It's, it's the musicalization of Gertrude Stein. Oh. By the same composer who did Ragtime. Loving Repeating. That's incredible. I should probably get it to you. You huh? should. Because yeah. we had a big hit with Gertrude Stein and the Companion. People love that play. The Gertrude Stein fanatics are all over the place. John Fisher, after Action Hero, you have another play multiple plays ready to roll. I've got all these plays I've never produced. There's one I wrote about Maria Callas and her uh, tenor, um, Giuseppe Di Stefano. It's this comedy about them and Ario Nassis. But I, I, I don't want to do it at Theater Rhinoceros. I want to have like some star in it, you know? That's what I want, you know? You know, this would be a great role for like, who played Jackie Kennedy? Natalie Portman. I mean, you know, I'd like to have this like big Broadway show. Those are the plays I haven't produced yet. I've got like eight big Broadway shows. You know, they need celebrities. John Fisher's one-person show, A History of World War II, plays at The Marsh. And for more information, you can go to themarsh.org. That's November 8th through December 15th on Thursdays and Saturday evenings. And Boy From Oz plays at the Gateway through November 17th. For more information, you can go to therhino.org. And December 3rd, The Swimmer by John Cheever plays at Z-Space in San Francisco. And that one is free. <laughs>